You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Raping kids is wrong, and people who rape kids should go to jail. So should people who collect or share photos of kids being raped. I'm not afraid to say it. I'll say it again. Raping kids, people who do that, they should go to jail. You can believe that, as I do, and also believe that not all pedophiles have raped kids, and not all child rapists are pedophiles. And making a distinction when it comes to pedophiles between pedophiles who've raped kids and pedophiles who haven't And figuring out what the ones who haven't might have done differently, besides, you know, not raping kids, figuring out what their coping mechanisms are or their strategies to avoid offending have been, that might help make the world a safer, better place. Not for pedophiles, for kids. Figure out what pedophiles who haven't raped kids are doing, besides not raping kids, and reach pedophiles who may not have offended yet and share those coping mechanisms and strategies with them so that they never rape a child. And most pedophiles haven't raped kids. And one of the things that distinguishes pedophiles who haven't raped kids from pedophiles who have is their awareness that it's wrong, that it's morally indefensible, that their desires can never be acted on, which is why they have never acted on them. So when you tell a pedophile, most pedophiles, that pedophilia is wrong, that raping kids is wrong, you're not really telling most pedophiles something most pedophiles don't already know. Still, I am happy to signal boost that message. Don't rape kids. Raping kids is wrong. Or all to hear. This came to mind while I was reading a recent piece by a writer I'd never heard of, Brendan O'Neill, in a publication I'd never heard of called Spiked. O'Neill is their chief political writer, and most of his writing is dedicated to railing against Netflix executives, the people who run tennis tournaments in Australia, and how wokeness ruined the new Sex and the City reboot. You know, politics stuff. So Anil wrote a piece a week or two ago, headlined, We Need More Kink Shaming. And it was illustrated with a photo of a guy in a puppy mask at a pride parade. But most of the piece is about pedophilia and an imaginary campaign to normalize pedophilia, to destigmatize pedophilia. A campaign that is really being waged nowhere by no one. After calling pedophiles sickos and perverts, O'Neill writes, What a weird world we live in. On the one hand, we're constantly being told to destigmatize certain ways of life, whether it's minor attraction, pedophilia, zoophilia, that's perverts who have sex with animals, men who like dressing up as babies, the pup fetish, people who pretend to be dogs, and so on. Suggests that these are warped pastimes that decent human beings should not engage in, and you'll be accused of kink shaming. Shaming people for their sexual perversions is a big no-go in the woke era. (sighs) Can you see what he did there? O'Neill lumps pedophiles and zoophiles in with people who are into pup play, and people, adult people, who are into pup play, and adult people who are into diapers with other adult people. There's a pretty simple and easy distinction you can make between These two groups on the one hand, pedophiles and zoophiles, and these other two groups, on the other hand, pup play practitioners and adult baby diaper lovers. I would say, if I were feeling generous, that the distinction was apparently lost on O'Neill, but that's too kind. The distinction was intentionally obscured, maliciously blurred. 
What O'Neill leaves out, what he doesn't want his readers to think about, is consent. A child and an animal are incapable of consenting to sexual activity. With an adult in a child's case, with a human in the case of a horse or a chicken or a dog or a ferret or a dolphin, adults into puppy play with other adults or adults into ABDL, they aren't harming anyone. There are no consent violations there. These are not moral equivalents, which is how O'Neill attempts to paint them. He attempts to lump in pedophiles and zoophiles with pup players, mostly gay, and adult baby diaper lovers. Look, people who rape children or animals, or other adults for that matter, should be ashamed, should go to jail. But rape, sexual assault, is not a kink. It's a crime. And while O'Neill condemns efforts to destigmatize pedophilia, which is how he describes the attempt to make a distinction between pedophiles who've offended and pedophiles who haven't, while he condemns people who feel some sympathy for a person who is cursed with these desires, with attraction to children, desires they never chose and can never act on morally, by lumping these groups in together, O'Neill isn't just attempting to stigmatize kinksters and queers by association— although he is doing that, he's trivializing rape and sexual assault, including the rape of children. By lumping adults who enjoy romping around with other adults in puppy masks together with men, and it's mostly men, who rape kids, it is O'Neill, and not the people he rails against, who's guilty of trivializing child rape. Before pivoting away from O'Neill's point and his whole dishonest point, this whole dishonest piece, I want to say... Whenever someone goes off and then goes on and on and on about how other people should be ashamed of their non-normative desires, which is an expression O'Neill uses, part of me always thinks, yeah, I want to see that guy's browser history. Bet it's interesting. That goes double, triple, quadruple for someone who can't or won't make a moral distinction between harmless non-normative desires like pup play or even diapers and harmful ones like raping kids. I'm going to make a hard pivot here. I'm going to leave O'Neill's odious piece behind. But I do want to think about the headline for a second, the statement the headline makes, absent the piece, divorced from the piece itself. We need more kink shaming. Do we need more kink shaming? Talking just about kinks here, kinks, not crimes. You know who else used to really get off on shaming people for their sexual orientations and their kinks, their desires? Jerry Falwell Sr., brilliantly portrayed by Vincent D'Onfrio in the eyes of Tammy Faye, currently streaming on Netflix. Jerry Falwell Jr., his son, took the family business over after his father died, took over Liberty University, a Christian college. And as we all found out a year or two ago, whether we wanted to find this out or not, Jerry Falwell Jr. liked to watch other men fuck his wife. At least one. At least one pool boy that we know of. Or probably more. More pool boys, more other kinds of boys. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Watching someone else fuck your spouse? I'm sorry, that shit's hot. My marriage, like Jerry Falwell Jr.'s marriage, is open. We've had threesomes, and since we don't have sex through a sheet with a hole cut in it, that means I have watched other people fuck my husband. I've watched my husband fuck other people. And it's hot. It's also on some level shameful. Wrong? Hot because it's so, so wrong and so, so shameful. This is not how you're supposed to behave as a married person. It's not what you're supposed to do or want as a married person. And yet, 
We do it, not all of us. Some of us, we do it and we want it. And it seems to me that as with most kinks, even for the sex positive and kink positive, that tension between what's right and what's hot, what's wrong and what's hot, that contradiction, even that little bit of residual shame, mm, maybe we don't want to let go of that. I sometimes think about all the efforts in sex positive communities, sex positive writers, sex positive podcasters, all of our efforts to normalize kink. And I'm all for it, but sometimes I think, do we, do the kinky really want that? Because if we resolve all those tensions, if we erase those contradictions, aren't we robbing our kinks of some of their erotic power? I think a significant amount of their erotic power? A feeling of wrongness, something that you maybe should be theoretically, objectively ashamed of. It's a spice, like a hot pepper. Too much feeling of wrongness, too much hot pepper, dish too spicy. You can't enjoy it, you can't eat it. But just a little bit? Just a dash? Just enough to make your tongue feel like it's burning? Hmm. Isn't that the good stuff? Don't we all like that? The pressure of being ourselves, our public-facing selves, it does get to us. It's a lot. And we need to blow that up every once in a while. By pulling on a puppy mask, or putting on a leash, or dressing up in drag, which is not to be confused with being trans. As we've seen on recent seasons of Drag Race, trans people can do drag and do do drag. But pulling on that puppy mask, or again, putting on that leash, cross-dressing, watching somebody else fuck your spouse. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And hot, 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 in part because it feels wrong, wrong, wrong on some level. So I guess I'm conflicted. I think we need less kink shaming, not more. But we don't want to get rid of all that shame entirely. We want to hold on to just a little bit of it. Spice in a jar on a shelf, just enough to keep things hot when we want them hot, but not enough to instill or perpetuate self-loathing or the kind of shame-induced paralysis that can make us a danger to others and ourselves. Because if you don't give your kinks some space, your kinks will take space. If you refuse yourself any opportunity, any outlet, you'll lunge an impulse at an opportunity that presents itself to you suddenly. And that's likely to be with the wrong person at the wrong time, with someone you can't trust or aren't safe with, or when you're so fucked up that the person you're with isn't safe with you. I'm against that kind of shame, that warping, paralyzing, damaging kind of shame. So, no, I don't think we need more kink shaming. But we need enough, just a little, just a dash, to keep things hot, to keep them spicy, for ourselves. All right, speaking of Jerry Falwell Jr. watching somebody else fuck his wife or me watching somebody else fuck my husband, it's Cuck Week. And joining me for a very special Cuck Week show, the Venus Cuckoldress returns to the Savage Lovecast to take some of your questions. Some of Venus is on the micro. All of Venus is on the Magnum. Savage Lovecast also on the Magnum. Dr. David Lay, who wrote the book on cuckolding, and Rose Carraway, who narrates the audio version of that book, Insatiable Wives, they join me for a joint interview about the phenomenon of cuckolding, what it means, why people do it, why they enjoy it, all that plus some of your non-cuckolding-related questions coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. 40-something-year-old gay guy here calling from Dallas, and I just got back from my local gym. It's a very unremarkable gym, completely ordinary in every regard. 
And working out there was a man in a sleeveless T-shirt, which read across the front in huge six-inch unmistakable letters, eat, sleep, eat, ass, repeat. This was 9 o'clock in the morning on a weekday. The gym was extremely busy, and this guy was every day of 40 years old, so he probably should have exercised better judgment. And upon reading the shirt, I was just struck with this immediate sense of just disgust, secondhand embarrassment, and anger. This was not a bar. This was not a circuit party. This was not Gay Days Orlando. This was your normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday gym with people from all walks of life. I would have had the same reaction if I saw a guy advertising his love of cunnilingus. So my question for you, Dan, is where does one draw the line between being out and proud and gay and flamboyant and unapologetic and maybe even a little bit transgressive and provocative and just being fucking gross? You seem pretty convinced that this guy in the eat ass t-shirt at the mixed gym at nine o'clock in the morning was gay eating ass and fucking gross t-shirts, not just for gay men anymore. Plenty of straight people are eating ass these days. Plenty of straight guys wear fucking gross t-shirts to restaurants, to casinos in Las Vegas, onto airplanes to the gym. So unless there were other tells, and, and maybe there were, maybe you knew this guy was a gay guy, you're a gay guy, I'm a gay guy. Gaydar is a thing. And science has demonstrated, I believe, I'm not gonna look the study up now, that gaydar is pretty effective, that gaydar works. Maybe you could tell this guy was gay. So he's a gay guy being gross at the gym. And as a fellow gay guy, you feel implicated in his grossness, right? Because straight people will lump us all in together and judge us all by the actions of sometimes people that we don't want to be lumped in together with and judged by others in the same way. Yeah, what do you do? There's nothing you can do. You draw these lines for yourself. What's out and unapologetic for you, maybe kissing your boyfriend or your husband goodbye in the morning, uh, you know, a, a simple and decent public display of affection, out and unapologetic and okay for you. There are definitely going to be people who've seen you kiss your husband or your boyfriend goodbye on the street and think that that's fucking gross. Do we want those people to draw the line? No, those people have to eat it. Not the ass, they have to eat it. They have to swallow it. They have to put up with us and fuck the fuck off and not come up to us and tap us on the shoulder and tell us they're gross. The price we pay for others not being able to impose on us to draw those lines for us and tell us what we can and can't do because they think it's fucking gross is sometimes we have to put up with somebody doing something that we think is fucking gross that perhaps even a majority of people might think is fucking gross. And we just have to look away and not roll our eyes and not look at the t-shirt again, not give the person in the eat ass t-shirt at the gym what they wanted, which was a reaction. All that said, you know, if somebody tries to get on an airplane in a really gross t-shirt with profanity on it or images of sexual activity and they make and sell those t-shirts these days, it's the airline that decides 
to, that, that draws the line for the airline and the other passengers. Same thing at the gym. If you think somebody is really inappropriately dressed at the gym or behaving inappropriately at the gym, creeping on other people, you don't confront that person yourself. You go and speak to the management at the gym. You go and speak to whoever's at the counter. And then they can decide whether they're going to, like an airline preventing somebody in an eat-ass t-shirt, prevent that person from boarding, whether the gym is going to prevent that person from lifting. Hey, Dan of Sex Heavy at Risk Youth. What do you do when your partner, my wife and I, you just haven't had sex in years. Your best friends, everything. I know it's companionate relationship. I know everything you're going to say. But you'd like to. And every time you think you're going to restart the engine, you don't know what fuel to throw on it. This is a serious thing. I was just talking to a friend of mine who I never would have guessed had the same problem. And she was like, oh, yeah, my husband and I, we haven't had sex in years. I think this is way more common than people think. You know, we've been getting like 20 years we've been together. And I think it's been like eight or nine years since we've had sex. And from what I'm hearing from people, this is actually really common now. And I'm a nymphomaniac. I still masturbate all the time. Everything, you know, I, I totally have my sex drive. So it's not bad. What do you do with that? It's like you just fall into that, like, ugh, why bother? But you're best friends, and you do everything else together. And I know it's good enough, and we could probably live out our life this way. But I think this is an interesting question, and I don't know if there's an answer, but I think it's a topic way bigger than than people think. You say you've listened to every single episode of The Lovecast, and it sounds like you've read a whole bunch of my columns. And you know what I'm going to say, uh, which is – if you aren't having sex with each other, if this is a companionate relationship, but you're still interested in sex and perhaps your wife is too, you're just not interested in having sex with each other, maybe because you're bored, maybe because there's some resentment that took root or you fell out of the groove and can't see your way back into it. Well, there's fucking other people. You could acknowledge that your relationship is companionate, that your love, your marriage, the connection that you have isn't defined by sex. Obviously, you've been together 20 years, nine of those years, the last nine of those years. It's been a sexless relationship. If you were going to leave over sex or she was going to leave over sex, one or the other or both of you would have left already. So as you likely predicted, as you can predict, as you could predict, as you did predict, I'm going to recommend opening the relationship, having that conversation about DADT, maybe getting out there and having some sexual adventures will help you to see each other as sexual beings again. Sometimes I think that's the problem in an LTR, uh, in a long-term relationship or a marriage or an opposite sex marriage, more often than a same sex marriage. The way we construct those relationships, the expectations we place on them wall us off from the ability to see our partners as still desirable by seeing them through the eyes of other people, by seeing them in the business of being desired. So many gay couples still go out to gay bars, still go to gay events. Terry and I together 25 plus years. We will go to a big, you know, weather fetish event like IML or Folsom in San Francisco and hang out and see people you know, my husband's pretty hot. I'll see people lust after my fucking husband. And it's almost like a view property. When you own a view property, you kind of 
take the view for granted until you have guests over who freak out about the view. Not that Terry is property, not that Terry is an object, not that Terry is a landscape, but sometimes it helps to see him through the eyes of strangers to be reminded that, yeah, he is still, after all these years, desirable to me. Straight relationships don't allow for that as easily. I think they should. I think maybe there would be fewer long-term, although in your case, contentedly long-term sexless marriages. If straight people got out more, played more together, maybe fucked around a little bit on the side, ethically, ethical non-monogamy here, consensual non-monogamy here, so that you knew that your wife was wanted. You know, Esther Perel, who I talk about all the time and I mention all the time, everyone should pick up and read her books. Everyone in a long-term relationship should, I think, uh, everyone is going to get married before the relationship is long-term, should have to read Mating in Captivity. She identifies the paradox of a long-term relationship uh, where desire and eroticism are concerned as wanting what you already have. How do you, you know, desire is to want. If you're married to someone, you have them in a very profound way, in a way that can undermine and eat away at desires. How do you want what you have? Well, I think it helps to see other people want what you have, and that can reignite your desire for your partner, seeing them wanted or seeing them taken by someone else. If that's not possible, if what your wife wants is a monogamous commitment and if that means the relationship is sexless, you two will be monogamously sexless together for the rest of your lives, all right, well, then you got to do what you got to do to stay married and stay sane. But I think a radically honest conversation with your wife about the facts on the ground that she is no doubt, just as you are, acutely aware of and what that means for your future, what that means for the rest of your 50s, what that means for the rest of her 40s, and what you can do to make what sounds like a, a good and loving relationship that you don't want to exit an even better relationship for both of you. A relationship that allowed for some sexual energy, sexual contact, eroticism, release other than masturbation, whether that's with each other or with others. And I think you knew I was going to say that, and so I said it. Zooming out, though, I do think relationships, long-term relationships that become companionate, where the sex falls away, are way more common than anyone wants to acknowledge, particularly also including a lot of people in the sex and relationship advice industrial complex. People have it in their heads that if they admit that, even to their partner, even to the person that they're not fucking and that person knows they're not fucking, just to admit that the relationship has become sexless is to be forced to confront something big and something scary because what we're told is that a relationship, a long-term loving relationship, should stay hot and sexy. And that if you're in love, the sex should be there. The sex should come without it being forced, without any intentionality or thought. And if you're truly in love, you're not going to want to have sex with anybody else and you're not going to be having sex with anyone else. And then when you are in love with somebody and you do essentially stop having sex, well, does that mean if you acknowledge the unfucked elephant in the room that you have to divorce 
A lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe they do have to divorce if they want to start having sex again. Because having sex with somebody who isn't your spouse if you're married is a terrible thing to do and you would be judged for it and shamed for it. If not by others, if anyone else found out, often by you, by yourself, you'll do the work for the sex shamers because it's been so scripted, so so pounded into your heads, all of our heads over the years. I think you got to do what you got to do to stay married and stay sane. I think people got to do or be encouraged to do what works for them as a couple, what's going to work for their marriage. And I can't tell you what that is. That's something that you, in the you know, the example of your particular marriage, it's something you're going to have to work out with your wife, which means having a difficult conversation, maybe with a couple's counselor. And I would encourage you to pick up and read uh, Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships by past Savage Lovecast guest Brian Earp and Julian Savalescu because where there's love and there's MDMA and a counselor, there may be a way back for you two a way back to sexual contact with each other, to to a sex life that you share. If you can peel away the layers of whatever it is that's getting in the way, whatever it is that's blocking you two from being intimate with each other in the way that you used to be. Pick up and read Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. And then, yeah, have that conversation with your wife and a counselor and maybe a little MDMA. Joining me to take the next couple of cuckold questions Venus, full-time producer and host of the Venus Cuckoldress podcast. She's also a founder of Venus Connections, a private matchmaking service for singles looking for loving cuckold relationships and a returning guest expert to the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Venus, how are you? Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back. I, I love your podcast. I have a lot of people on the show before they have podcasts, then they get podcasts. Sometimes I'm like, ah, more podcast competition. I don't need that. But I love your podcast and I listen. My only complaint is that it doesn't come out more often. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the feedback about it. And I'm, I'm so happy that you love it. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to get on that. Maybe just weekly episodes from now on, huh? Yeah, yeah, weekly episodes. And uh, a lot of the voices you platform, I think, are important voices for men in particular who are interested in cuckolding to hear because you talk with a lot of women who are in the mm -hmm. lifestyle, who are cuckoldresses to their uh, sub-cuckold husbands or boyfriends. And there's a lot of joy in that role. And, and sometimes guys are afraid to bring it up, afraid to ask because they think, and maybe they have gotten a negative reaction in the past. And I think it's really good for guys who want to be cucks to hear from women who, you know, had a journey around it. You know, often with kink, you, you ask and your partner, if they're not into it or haven't thought of it themselves, has a negative reaction. And then they come around. And I think that's what I mean by like a lot of the voices of the women on your show are really important for guys who want to be cucks to hear because they may be women who initially had a negative reaction and who are now so enthusiastic about being in the cuckold lifestyle that they want to be on your show. Yes, absolutely. I, I have had wonderful guests on the show and just, uh, it's, it's so important to have that female perspective and really highlight that, like you said, um, for the men who are interested in, in this kind of relationship. Did you ever expect when you first got interested in cuckolding or were introduced to it by a, a partner, it wasn't your idea, that we would be celebrating such a thing as a cuck week sometime in the future, that this would be a campaign? 
I like had no fucking idea that uh, I would be doing a podcast even or talking to you or doing a cuck week. So there you go. <laughs> you know, sometimes before we get to, I have a couple calls I want to take with you. Uh, before we get to the calls, I have this question. I, there's this thing I keep turning over in my head. I'm all for normalizing things. I'm all for destigmatizing. I think people need to let go of sexual shame. That said, there is some part of shame that is deeply erotic and you want to be in control of it. You want it to be like a spice that you add to the stew, right? You add a little red pepper to the mm -hmm. stew. It has some kick. You dump all the red pepper in. It's inedible. I feel like shame's the same thing about certain kinds of kinks. A little bit of shame, it makes it that much more intensely erotic. Too much shame, you're going to act on it in weird ways or you're not going to enjoy it or you're going to be too so paralyzed by shame afterwards that you're mentally in anguish. But do we really, you know, we're having a cuck week. Cuck week's being celebrated on the internet. There's a cuck week hashtag. Um, it's being promoted by a lot of uh, other people who talk about sex and talk about cuckolding. Do, but as somebody who's into cuckolding and aroused by it, do you worry if we completely normalize it or eradicate shame, we'll take some of the juice out of it? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think probably it would. I mean, the taboo nature of this kind of relationship is what makes it so thrilling and so exciting, I think, for, for myself anyway. And for a lot of the the guys who are interested in it, so if it's no longer so taboo, <laughs> then who knows what it would look like? But I think that um, I, it is important for guys to realize that there is that that cuck angsty kind of feeling, that shame, that nervousness, that excitement, that kind of embarrassment or whatever around um, being a cuckold. But at the end of the day, it's, it is very, very important for cucks to know that despite that part of it, they are still loved and they are still important and they should be proud of who they are. That, that angst that cucks feel, it's kind of like a horse, a wild horse. You want to put it in harness, you know, uh, you want mm -hmm. to, you want to not control that power, but you want to harness that power. And it can be a, a driver of an intensely erotic connection with a long-term partner. But you also don't want to get stomped to death. And I guess I'm torturing multiple metaphors now, <laughs> stew, horses. But I, I guess I just want to like, I want to advocate for holding on to some little bit of the shame, holding on mm -hmm. to some little sense of, oh my God, this is so fucking wrong. And that's part of what makes it hot. Absolutely. And it, the key is being able to to process that in a, a, a healthy way and not allow the shame to be so overwhelming that it it damages your relationships with people or it damages your self-esteem or whatever. So leaning into that shame and really um, processing it in a way where it is sexy, it is desirable, it is uncomfortable, and it's still fun is so important. And it's some it's a skill that not everybody can do. Yeah, I think some people are worried that if they toy with erotic play that has a degree of shame or taboo or transgression in it, and they really throw themselves into it, that they won't be able to come back from it. And yeah. the, the reverse is often true. You know, in the moment when you're aroused with a partner you trust, in a consensual environment, whatever the kink might be, 
that has a taboo transgressive or, you know, you might be shamed for by people who don't understand why this would turn you on or why you would want to do it. It's almost as if the more exaggerated and pronounced and burlesque you make the shame at that moment, when you step back from it, when you're not aroused anymore, you can, it, 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 it falls away and you can see when you lean into it that it has the power you give it. And when you walk away from it, it doesn't have that power over you anymore when you're not doing it. Exactly. Exactly. That's what one of my guests explained that I found so fascinating was that when you do lean into it like that um, and you really immerse yourself into it and you just accept it, you 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 uh, witness this, then what's on the other side is actually really amazing, <laughs> really empowering. So it's unexpected, but it is something that I feel like having someone share their story in that way is mm-hmm. so important because people can learn how to really go for it. You hear this a lot from people who are into BDSM as subs that you know, they may be tied up, they may be ordered around, they may be degraded, but they're in charge of when and with who and how. Mm-hmm. And they find that, you know, if you just saw the snapshot of the play where they look like they're being, you know, tormented, brutalized, degraded, humiliated. If you just look at that snapshot, you don't understand that if you step back and look at the whole experience in its complete context, in the context of the relationship, the sub was in charge of the who, when, and how. And that can be empowering despite what the photograph or the snapshot might look like or the impression it might give. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, this is a relationship between two people, two human beings who who care about each other. So um, even though it seems like cuckolding is is shameful, it's it's fearful, it's unfair, it's you know humiliating, whatever. Even though it seems like that, it, these there are two people who are very much um, in in love or or care about each other, and and they're we're doing these things for each other because we want them, not because you know it's something that um, we're you know we're mean spirited or something like that. So. People get hung up on what can seem unfair about cuckolding. Well, you get to sleep with other people. And he doesn't. Yeah. How is that fair? Well, it turns me on, you know, the woman on, turns her on to sleep with other people. And it turns him on for her to sleep with other people. That's what's fair about it. That's what they both get out of it. It wouldn't be fair if, you know, she slept with other people and he wanted to and wasn't allowed to and it didn't turn him on. But, like, I don't see how people cannot wrap their heads around that. Like, it's fair <laughs> in that know. everybody's excited about it. That's what's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone gets what they what they want and they need to feel fulfilled in the relationship sexually. So, I mean, just because we focus so much on PIV sex that she's having with some other guy doesn't mean that he's not enjoying their sex life together. So, it, yeah, it boggles my mind as well. So I, I have a couple of questions from, from listeners that I'd like to tackle with you, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Hi, Dan and Venus. My name is Queen A and I live on the West Coast. I'm a bisexual 26-year-old woman. My fiancé and I have been dating for over seven years. Before him, I had never even had sex. When he graduated, he moved across the country, and we broke up because we didn't want distance. We stayed in touch, though, and two months later, I jokingly said to him that it would be funny if we did a sort of open relationship where I could do whatever I wanted, whoever I wanted, and he stayed monogamous. To my surprise, he agreed. Little did I know, I had just pitched the idea of cuckolding to a cuck. This worked really well for me because I had the emotional support from him and I got my physical needs met from hookups. 
Obviously, it worked really well for him. Fast forward, I graduate, we move in together, and we had to talk about how we were going to continue the open relationship moving forward because I was not going back to monogamy. It was too late. This is when he introduces me to cockholding. I had never heard about it before, but based on our arrangement in college, looking back, it all makes sense. Since learning about cuckolding, it's been about four years. Throughout the years, our experiences have been kind of sporadic, but everything we've done so far has been so fun, and I'm so horny for days after. This is honestly when my fiancé and I have the best sex with each other. I want to get more into it and do things more often, but I'm kind of experiencing this little bit of hesitancy about fully immersing in the lifestyle. I'm not really sure why. And Venus... I know that your ultimate fantasy is to get gang-banged on your wedding night. We were inspired by this, and my fiancé and I want to have me be with a bull on our wedding night. We're getting married next year, and I need to get over this hesitancy because I want to find a bull I trust for this special moment. How do you recommend getting over this? This sounds almost too good to be true. As Yahtzees go, I want to sleep with other people, but I don't want you to, and she proposes that to a guy who turns out to be a cuckold. What are the odds? I know, right? The odds are actually pretty good because there's a lot of guys who do want this. <laughs> okay, so the odds the odds aren't zero or even 0.01%, but still a real Yahtzee moment for her. Uh, I've seen this happen with other people who are like embarrassed about their kinks or worried about sharing them and then wound up having a kind of tearful, long, dark night of the soul disclosure, laid their kink cards on the table, worried about being rejected only to discover that the person that they were laying their kink cards on the table in front of shared their exact kinks. That sometimes happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that she was able to ask for what she wants, even though she was doing it in a playful kind of joking manner. She, she did. She asked for what she wanted. And she was clear. She was like, I would like to sleep with other people I can see being in a relationship while I sleep with other people, but I don't think emotionally I could handle or want my partner to sleep with other people. I want you to be monogamous. I want me to be free. And what's crazy about this question and almost makes me, you know, every once in a while you have to go, is this for real? Is this person being for real? And I think, I think they are. I think they're sincere. What's crazy about this question is when it comes to cuckolding, it's usually the man who asks, mm-hmm. uh, not the woman who proposes an arrangement. I do want to say, though, that the caller says they're just getting involved in the lifestyle. Sounds to me like they've been doing it for years. Yeah. So uh, I think she's further along in this journey than she gives herself credit for. Just because now you have the term in terms. Now you can call yourself, uh, you know, a cuckoldress and him a cuck and your other male sex partner's bulls. I think the call caller, I would say to you, you have some expertise where this is concerned. My worry, though, about planning a gangbang on a wedding night or inviting a bull to be the first person you have sex with on your wedding night, it's just one more high stakes thing on your wedding, a high pressure day already that could go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's why I think I would tell her just don't over plan it um, and just kind of let things happen as they happen. Um, if you script it too much, I can just imagine it being, you know, not fun and you're exhausted because it's been a long day and it just, yeah, it seems like a, more of a chore. Mm-hmm. I would hate for that to have to happen. So I would just say, you know what, just have this loose plan. 
um, and then see where it goes and have fun with it. And wedding night sex is overrated. I think people should fuck first. I think you fuck <laughs> before the service. Imagine standing at the altar with the man you're marrying with some other dude's cum running down your legs uh, under your skirts so the family <laughs> doesn't see. I think that sounds like more fun. People are exhausted <laughs> at the end of their wedding days. You should hashtag fuck first. That advice applies in all situations, including couple cuckold couple situations. The only other bit of advice I might give to the, the caller is if you're asking, how do I find a bull for my wedding night? That makes me think that you are not seeing guys more than once or regularly. And maybe that sometimes, you know, the limit for the other partners that there are no regulars. Does nobody have a relationship with, but me and finding a bowl for your wedding night is going to be easier if you have a regular bowl, someone you trust, because you really are putting them in a, a position on your wedding night to play an important role sexually, emotionally in your relationship. It's almost like a different kind of best man or maid of honor. And you don't pick a rando for best man or maid of honor. You pick somebody you know and trust and love who supports your relationship. And I think a bowl on the wedding night has to be someone that you know and trust and like, if not love, uh, and you can trust, you know, to, 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 to be that person for you, to, to stand up for you or lay down for you at your wedding. Yeah, absolutely. Good advice. Can we keep you on for one more question? Yep. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. Uh, super excited about your cuck episode. Basically I'm pretty interested in being a cuck queen, or at least that's where a lot of bisexual fantasies uh, revolve around right now in the last like year, couple years or so. 26 bisexual, living in Texas. Me and my boyfriend have threesomes now and then. So we're on the dating apps, talking to girls and meeting up with them and everything. But just in the last year or so, I've just really been I don't know, turned on by the thought of him being with somebody and I'm not involved in it. I Sometimes it's like kind of like a shameful you're not involved and sometimes it's a playful you're not involved. But I just found finding anything about the cuck queen lifestyle can be pretty, it's pretty difficult. Like the porn sites don't have a lot of videos. There's like a small Reddit community that's not great and i'm afraid of scaring people away on the normal dating apps because you know being a couple on a dating app can you already feel kind of like you're invading spaces sometimes so uh it's it's a little bit challenging but this is something i'd really like to explore beyond just solo play and role playing with my partner and i i would love some advice on how to get started and where to go it's interesting that she says that Sometimes this feels shameful to her in a sexy way to not be involved. Other times it feels playful. I would encourage the caller to integrate mm -hmm. those two things, allow them to feel shameful and playful and playful and shameful at the same time. Yes, absolutely. So why why are there so many more cuckolds than cuck queens? Cuck queen is a, a female cuckold. Why is this, why does it seem to be rarer? That's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I did have a physician friend who wrote a piece on my blog, venuscuckoldjust.com, and it was called The Health Benefits of Cuckolding. And he went into detail, into depth about the biological response that a man has when he thinks about his wife sleeping with another man. And for me, that was really just one of those aha moments where I was like, okay, maybe this is why so many men have such a strong reaction to cuckolding fantasies. And I would love to see some research done to, to under, better understand that, but also research done with women. Do we have a similar reaction? I mean, I think it's hot and fuck 
fun and sexy, but I don't know that we have the same kind of biological reaction that men do. And maybe that has something to do with why there are so few cut queens out there. That's just my theory anyway. I think it might be biological. It's always with human beings hard to fully separate uh, into discrete categories or piles, biological from social. Historically, for most of recorded human history, the woman was in much greater peril socially, financially, if the man left her. And so maybe right. it's harder for women to eroticize the man cheating because of lingering cultural hangups around the danger of being abandoned, whereas men had less fear of that. There's something about cuckolding for straight men that weaponizes, you know, their you know, eroticizes in the sense of weaponizing their insecurities. Um, I think it's better to be turned on by your partner cheating on you than insanely angry by your partner cheating on you because the odds are your partner is going to cheat on you at some point. You might as well get something out of it. But I can see how for men there may be a biological driver that makes it super arousing, you know, the reclaiming thing. And I can see how for women there may be a social disincentive that's kind of been pounded into women over hundreds of thousands of years of recorded human history where the, the dude cheating was infinitely riskier to contemplate. Yeah. That makes sense. So you've helped to create a community of cuckolds uh, and women who would like to have cuckold partners. Where do the cuck queens go and hang? Do the cuck queens hang with the cuckolds or is there a cuck queen community they should create? Well, you know, right now I think they do, they're incorporated within the general cuckolding community and, and welcome um, to do so. And because I, there really isn't a special place for them. And, and it's unfortunate. I do, I know one um, cut queen, her name is Taylor. She goes by at um, Satin Dolly Pop on that life. And she is very outspoken about being a cut queen and wants to connect with other women uh, and share her story. So I, I, that's promising. That's wonderful that there are women who are trying to connect with each other. And it would be really great to have um, a, a space for them for that. But right now they're hanging out with the, the cuckolding community, which is, is great and it's fine and it's, it's wonderful to have them. Now, as to your question about where she could go to kind of get started in fulfilling her fantasies, it's probably best for her to just stick with vanilla dating sites, but use really soft language. I wouldn't use anything like cut queen or cuckolding or humiliating or anything like that. Stick with the playful, the fun game, the threesome where I watch kind of thing and, and keep it very gentle like that. I think it's easier for people to digest something like that. Venus is the full-time producer and host of the Venus Cuckoldress podcast, founder of Venus Connections, a private matchmaking service for singles looking for loving cuckold relationships. Venus, it's always such a pleasure to chat with you. I'm so psyched that Cuck Week got declared so I could have an excuse to have you back on the Lovecast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm 37, living in the Bay Area, and I have a cuckolding question for you. I have had a very, shall we say, adventurous uh, sexual history, dating history, uh, that has involved past relationships with cuckolding and swinging and orgies and sex work and porn and lots of adventures. And my, par my current partner 
is basically new to everything. Um, super excited to learn. I took him to his first orgy. He had a great time. We, we had a great time. It was awesome. He's really finding out that he is interested in cuckolding. He really wants to see me have sex with other partners. The issue is, I think all of my sexual adventures, all of my sexual experiences that involve other people are in the past for me. And I think this just the stage that I'm in, I think I might even be monogamous. And it's tricky because cuckolding to me, it just, it seems like one of those things you can't like role play your way out of, or you can't like bring on a new partner. You can't fake because the whole, the crux of it is that your partner wants to see their partner with other people. And that just, you know, you can't really like substitute that or suggest having a third or another partner. I just, I'm just not sure how I can fulfill this for my partner who now that he's been introduced to all of these wonderful adventures he seems like he's into cuckolding big time he really wants to see me with other partners and I just might be kind of done with that stage of my life what would you suggest might be a solution so that I can fulfill this for my partner and he can you know really test this out and see if this is part of his new sexual identity. It's unfortunate that you worked this out about yourself, that you figured out about yourself, that you were done, done with group sex, done with orgies, done with cuckolding, done with porn, done with these kinds of sexual adventures. After you took your new boyfriend to his first, not orgy singular, but orgies plural. Yeah. What are you going to do now that he's seen the promised land now that he's marched into the promised land with you and is interested in group sex, a kind of open relationship with you, a one-sided open relationship, a cuckolding relationship. How do you walk that back? How do you fulfill his fantasies? How do you help him explore this interest when you no longer share it, when you're in a phase of life where you would like to be monogamous? And that may be a phase that you're not in forever, but it's certainly what you want right now. And I validate that. I support that. But what do you do? What do you do with the partner that you've awakened this interest in and really welcomed and invited this kind of interest by taking him out on his first varsity sexual explorations? Well, there is a way to fulfill uh, his interest. There is a solution here. Cuckolding doesn't always involve having sex with someone else in front of a partner or, you know, somebody watching somebody else have sex with their partner. Sometimes it involves just hearing about it. That can mean telling him about past sexual partners while you're having sex with him, comparing him if he's into the degradation and humiliation aspect of cuckolding to past sexual partners uh, and telling him where and how he comes up, quote unquote, short. It can also involve some playful, consensual deception where you invent stories. If you're out for a night with the girls, uh, that night isn't going to end with you in bed with someone else uh, or hooking up with somebody else in the bathroom or on a dance floor at a club because you're feeling monogamous these days and you're coming home to him. But you could spin a tale, not deceive him. It would be clear that this is role play fantasies about what could have happened while you were out of his sight. But of course, asterisks, 
you know didn't and he knows didn't, but you can both suspend your disbelief for some fantasy role play. So it is possible for you to scratch this itch, for you to fulfill this fantasy without you having to sleep with anybody else or do anybody else now, just mining your vast and varied sexual experience uh, while having sex with your partner to tease and torment him, to sort of retroactively cuckold him with those past experiences, or spin out some fantasies about things you could have done now, and then see where you are in six months or a year. You may just have the sort of feeling about this guy where you want to lock it down, you want it to be exclusive for a while so you can form the kind of connection that would allow perhaps later if you enter a different phase or re-enter the kinds of phases you were in in the past where then you could explore cuckolding in real time. Then you could explore having sex with other people in front of him. But in the meantime, yeah, definitely there are ways for you to fulfill these desires of his that you helped awaken, I think, by taking him to those first orgies. Doesn't obligate you to keep going to orgies with him. Doesn't obligate you even to fulfill these fantasies for him. And of course, I don't mention the orgies in any way to create a sense of obligation on your part to get out there and have sex with other people or even engage in role play uh, about having sex with other people if that's not something that's going to turn you on in this monogamous phase of your life. But if this is something that he has to explore and you can't go there even in fantasy with him, well, maybe that's a sign that you guys aren't right for each other, at least not right now. And you could help him fulfill this fantasy by allowing him to find a partner who's interested in a cuckold relationship at a time when you're not. All right, let's get back to some of our cuck content for Cuck Week. Joining us, a couple of very special guests, David Lay, psychologist, sex therapist, and author. He wrote the book, Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray, and the Men Who Love Them, published in 2009. Really the first book that took a close look at hot wifing, stag and vixen, cuckold couples. That book has now been turned into an audiobook narrated by our other guest, Rose Carraway, an editor, audiobook narrator, publisher, and podcaster, and host of the number one erotica show on iTunes, the Kiss Me Quick Erotica Podcast. Hey, David. Hey, Rose. Thank you so much for joining us for the first annual Cuck Week. Thanks for having us. Let's cover like the basics. You never know when someone, you know, a listener out there started listening for the very first time and doesn't know what we all know or what other listeners have already heard about. What is cuckolding? Why don't you take that one first, David? Uh, you know, cuckolding is a modern kind of um, uh, sexual lifestyle that's focused on wives or girlfriends um, having sex with other, uh, typically men, with the husband's you know enthusiastic permission or support. It is a form of consensual non-monogamy. What's interesting about it, though, is that it is uh, more focused on the female sexuality as opposed to things like swinging. Or, or polyamory, where there are more, um, you know, uh, egalitarian explorations. So, so what is the difference between cuckolding and hot wifing or stag and vixen? There's a lot of parsing of those different labels that you see online uh, when people are discussing these topics. 
people will will dive into the esoterics of these are of these definitions and they'll argue them to death but in general cuckolding tends to involve um a more uh, submissive role by the male oftentimes some some more uh, parallels with BDSM or humiliation hot wifing or stag and vixen relationships tend to be they they might look a little bit more like swinging where there's not a humiliation or submission kind of uh, component but again it's more focused on let us let us celebrate focus on the boundless you know expanses of the female sexuality so rose you are the reason that cuck week exists are you not <laughs> i'm i'm half of the reason my my husband coined the phrase and i said yes and then we told david lay and then this is happening <laughs> But it was your idea to record an audio version of, of, of David's really important book when it comes to hot wifing, uh, stag and vixen, cuckold relationships, uh, insatiable wives, women who stray, uh, and the men who love them. You guys are bringing out the, the audio version of the book. And if I understand correctly, that was your idea to record it? Yeah, it's, it's a book that is uh, tremendously helpful in the cuckold world. It is, I've heard a lot of people claim it to be the Bible of cuckolding. Uh, so it, it's an important book that needs to be brought into, you know, 2022, uh, because everybody's on the move. We're always on the go and we're always on our phones. And, and I, you know, people need to be able to listen to this book. We don't always have time to read. So, uh, yeah, and audio is our expertise. So, David, when Cuck Week was first floated to you, proposed to you, the idea, you instantly got behind it, emailed me about it. Why did it appeal to you? Cuckolding, you know, has historically been an incredibly stigmatized and, and sort of shamed uh, sexual practice. I mean, people and, and women who engage in cuckolding are, are treated as sluts and men who, you know, fantasize about or engage in cuckolding are, are treated as, you know, lesser men. I mean, we look at the you know, the modern conservatives and the far right and how they're, you know, calling everybody cuck and and, and treating it as this uh, just inherent weakness. But the thing that I've seen in cuckold couples and hot wife couples and all, all of these different flavors is that, you know, these are some really interesting people who, who have found a way to make this really positive in their lives. So, when I heard about Cuck Week, I said, you know, this could be an opportunity for these people to really stand up and kind of celebrate, come out publicly about how cuckolding is a really positive, healthy part of their lives and start to fight some of that shame and stigma. And the really exciting thing is when I started talking to some of these cuckold couples that I know, um, they were thrilled with it and they loved the idea of, you know, just standing up and, and shouting, hey, this is a really exciting, positive part of our lives. Cock pride. Cock pride, absolutely. <laughs> Rose, I want to ask you, though, you host the Kiss Me Quick Erotica podcast. Shame, you know, destigmatizing something, telling people they shouldn't feel shame. Isn't shame a contributor to how powerfully erotic something can feel? That tension, that contradiction you know, between who we are and how we present ourselves publicly and, and, and who we might be sexually and the way those might contrast. And sometimes I worry, I, I don't worry, sometimes I think that if in our efforts to, you know, strip away the shame or tell everyone they shouldn't feel shame or to destigmatize absolutely everything, we risk robbing some of these things of their erotic power. Uh, shame can be fun. I think it's when you remove the guilt. If you can take 
guilt out of sexual play, then playing with taboo subjects, taboo sex play, it can be so much fun because we all wear masks when we go out in public. Mm -hmm. And when we're with our partner, that is the like ultimate connection that we have is when we're together intimately. And on the Kiss Me Quicks, first and foremost, I have to tell you that Kiss Me Quicks would not exist if it wasn't for Dan Savage oh, and no, Savage, the you. Savage Love podcast, That's very I to listened say. to, oh my God, like I, I remember back in 2000, I mean, you know, 2009, 2010, I would hear couples calling and talking to you, all walks of life calling and just sounding so heartbroken. They've got these fantasies and they can't live them. They can't act on them. They can't play with them. They're too afraid or too ashamed or their partner has an opinion and they don't know how to talk to their partner about these things. And the show is designed to offer storytelling in, in a fantasy way to open people's, um, you know, just their, their fantastic minds, give them that adult playground to give them the open door to say, you're okay. You're all right. Everybody's got fantasies. We're all normal. And this is a valid thing. This is part of our human experience. So, so David, it, it sounds like too much shame is a bad thing. How do you hold on to just the right amount? You know, don't, it, it's when people start to hate themselves. Um, and when people want to want, want to do what a friend of mine calls an erotic ectomy, you know, when they, when they want to cut their sexuality out of themselves, mm. that's when it's too much. You know, one of the things that I work with a lot of people about is trying to unpack and understand where they got their sexual values. You know, if you feel ashamed about, you know, your desire to watch, uh, you know, your wife with other men, what is it that is bringing up that pain? You know, is it about your ideas about, you know, what a real man is? Or is it about your fear that she's going to leave you for somebody else? When we start unpacking, it, my belief is that shame is kind of the tip of the iceberg and it's built on a foundation of a lot of oftentimes antiquated, very, very restrictive black and white social values about sex. And if we, if we unpack those, we can, we, we can start making adult decisions about them. Sometimes people have this idea that if they can just get to the bottom of their kink, if they can find the inciting incident, if they can look back in their childhood and, and identify something that vibes with their kink, that it'll cure them, that it'll alleviate them of their kinks somehow. But that's not how it works. No, you, you, we we just create these narratives that kind of may they may give us some peace to accept ourselves, and that's a good thing. But but you know, sexuality and, and 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 kinks, you know, these are really really complicated things involving you know biology and genetics and 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 psychology and social social issues and everything else. I, I, a lot of the kinks that we have, we have because society is trying to drive them out. That's what makes them kinky and exciting. So Rose, I first read about cuckolding, I think 25 years ago, and it felt like such a niche sexual interest. And I've watched with, I don't know, not alarm, admiration, but sometimes I'm a little stunned by how cuckolding has not gone mainstream, just like it's found its voice. And I think partly Twitter uh, allowed for that, that people can create online accounts and find community on Twitter around their kinks in a way that they didn't 
used to be able to, uh, or then they did for a while on Tumblr and then Tumblr kicked everybody off. Um, <laughs> what, what have you observed? What's, what's different now than, you know, five years ago or 2009, I think it was 2009 when, when Insatiable Wives first came out. As an observer of, of erotica, as someone who's interested in other people's fantasies, have you seen it gather steam? Are there more people into this now than there were before? And how do people who weren't into it before get into it? How does that process work? Wow. I, you know, one of the things I learned from reading Insatiable Wives is that cuckolding has been here for a very long time. We've just never been able to talk about it. And thank goodness for the internet, because that is connected kinky players all over the world and exposed us to more things. Um, We didn't even know what cuckolding was back in 2011 when we first started the KMQ, but it was the very first listener request that we got. Can you please, Rose, write a cuckolding story? I didn't know what it was, so he he offered to send me some videos. And so I I was a little trepidatious about that, but I said, okay, because I'm a writer at heart. I'm a storyteller, and I I would like to be as accurate as possible, even though, you know, storytelling is not a how-to manual, especially within erotica. But I really wanted to get to kind of the nut of what cuckolding was. The videos are very helpful there. So I watched these videos, and I I was able to put myself in this wife's position. And then because I've been married for like 23 years, I know my husband very well. And I could, I asked him a bunch of questions so I could write this story that would help people, listeners understand the different perspectives and different fears of what this is. And man, over the years, we've learned that me, my husband and I are not the only ones who have these kinks. We're not the only ones who like to watch one another masturbate, let alone my husband loves it when I get off. That thing, compersion, that is written all over his body and, and Dr. Lay can can take us there. But I, I I didn't know what that was. And it's all through cuckolding and, and so many people are into it. We've just not been able to talk about it. It's really interesting for me as a gay man uh, to observe the impact that the, the internet has had on so many straight people. It used to be common to mm-hmm. the gay experience. You used to hear from gay men who grew up in you know the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, some of the you know gay elders that I met when I first came out as a teenager. One of the things they often said was, I thought I was the only one in the world, the only gay person right. in the world. They grew up you know in a small town. They were the only gay person. Uh, and then they moved to the big city or th- th- they found out that they weren't alone. And it's been interesting, you know, to see over the last 25 years that the internet happened, so many straight people who weren't queer, who weren't gay, but have a similar sort of epiphany where they thought they were the only person in the world turned on by the idea of their wife sleeping with another man. Or they thought they were the only person in the world into X, Y, or Z thing or emotional dynamic or kink. Uh, and they realized because of the internet, they weren't the only one in the world. And you just used that language to, des- to describe yourself in your own journey. And as a gay man of a certain age, that that touches my heart in this way, that that experience of that feeling of being the only one in the world, finding out you're not and feeling, you know, better about yourself, that that's not something that's unique anymore to the gay experience. And it's also part for many straight people of the straight experience now, too. Yeah, what a relief, right? It's like you 
you you've dreamed of this home you've all, everybody needs this home that makes them feel good and that includes in our sexuality and because of the internet and because of connecting with i mean i've talked to so many hot wives recently i'm like oh my god girl like i feel there's some family there yeah it's absolutely true yeah so david i guess i should have asked this at the beginning of the interview but i'm uh you know, 15 years into this podcast and still bad at interviews. What inspired you to write Insatiable Wives, the book that became the Bible of cuckolding? Yeah, it's a, it's a longer story, but but I, I ran into these couples that were living the hot wife and cuckold lifestyle. And even though I'd been working with, with alternative sexuality you know, practices for a while in my clinical practice, I my initial assumption was, you know, that that's fucking crazy. That that, that can't be healthy. You know, that the husband's monogamous and the wife is all fucking other guys. Crazy. But the neat thing was that these these couples I met were like a lot of these couples. They they had remarkable communication skills. They had some really incredible relationships that they had built and and it forced me to realize that I had allowed moral bias um to intrude into my clinical thinking and I had noticed it and it it forced me to then try and dive in and 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 understand this better and understand also you know where where and how I had I had allowed that judgment to kind of creep in and um and then I realized that a lot of people, a lot, a lot of my colleagues, but society in general, were 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 making these these biased judgments of something that, as I dove into it, turned out to be pretty healthy. And and that was the neat thing, you know, the research study that that you and Justin and I did a few years ago about gay cuckolding. I mean, and we found there that exploring cuckolding. And, and and this non-monogamy in general turned out to be pretty healthy for most people that did it, which of course led to you know the 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 internet exploding when CNN published a story <laughs> about our about our research saying you know cuckolding is positive for couples, and and you know and and everybody lost their minds. But but that was that was the story. I I initially thought it was it was bad, and then I was wrong, and and I wanted to I wanted to explore it better and learn. Yeah. I think when it came to cuckolding, there was a, for a lot of therapists, a lot of psychotherapists, couples counselors, there was a, who showed up in my office bias. You know, the couples that a lot of therapists and couples counselors who were seeing where somebody was sleeping with somebody else were the couples that were unhappy about it, where it was cheating, where it was a crisis in the relationship, not showing up in the couples counselors offices, the couples who it was making their relationship better. It was something they both enjoyed together, which again, like to drag it back to homosexuality, there's kind of a parallel there. Everyone used to think that homosexuals were all sick because all these psychotherapists and, and psychoanalysts, all of their gay patients were sick, but they weren't looking at the gay men who weren't seeking out counseling, who didn't hate themselves, who weren't struggling as a control group for comparison's sake. And the same thing kind of played out here where Counselors who saw people where there was infidelity or cheating or openness only saw the ones in crisis, not the ones who were loving it. Exactly. And that's why we're actually starting out Cuck Week with a uh, a cocktail cocktail party with um, uh, in partnership with the Sexual Health Alliance. And we're we're uh, we've got like one hundred and fifty people signed up already where we're we're having cuckold couples come in and share their stories, share the positives with 
sex therapist in training so that we can start breaking down some of that, some of that, some of those assumptions. Where can people who want to know more about Cuck Week go? Uh, what's the, the, the Twitter handle for Cuck Week? If people are interested in it, uh, where would you send them? Cuck Week, where we've kind of made a sort of centralized hub on Twitter and it's at Cuck Week. Um, so follow that Twitter handle. We are about to release our official schedule of events. I invite anybody who's just curious about like upping their sexuality IQ to follow it, you know, to help take the sting out of just the word cuck. Like it comes with this preloaded thing. It's, it's, it's about consensual non-monogamy and how actual people work it into their lives. And we're going to have a lot of different perspectives and educational moments there. Uh, lots of interviews, some live discussions on the Moan app uh, that I think can only be found right now on the iPhone. I think they're working about uh, trying to get it on Android. But uh, right now, if you have an iPhone, you can get the Moan app and there'll be some live discussions you can participate on. But I encourage people to take part in the cocktails thing because everybody is invited and you'll get to hear real couples talk about their real challenges. And when, and when is the cocktail party? Tuesday, the 25th at, Oh, I think it's at six o'clock, uh, mountain time. Um, and like I said, you can find it through the sexual health Alliance. Dr. David Lay, a psychologist and sex therapist, author of Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray, and The Men Who Love Them, The Bible of Cuckolding and Hotwifing, Rose Carraway, editor, audiobook, narrator, publisher, podcaster of the number one erotica show on iTunes, The Kiss Me Quick Erotica Podcast. She reads the new audiobook version of Insatiable Wives, and you can find that wherever you get your audiobooks. David and Rose, thank you so much for inspiring the first annual Cuck Week. We usually don't do these like sex days of obligation around here, like masturbation day or whatever day. But I feel like since I was writing about cuckolding so long ago before it kind of exploded uh, and became more publicly aware that I would make an exception for Cuck Week and for you guys, because I knew this conversation would be interesting and it was. So thank you both. Thanks for everything, Dan. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Hi, Dan. Cis female calling from the Midwest regarding a consent question. Our local BDSM monthly social meets at a very LGBTQ and kink-friendly bar. On the night of our social, they're closed to the public, but a few regulars may straggle in. We usually have 50 to 70 people in attendance. Someone recently suggested that we have a night where everyone who wants to can wear their Bluetooth-controlled devices, such as vibrating panties, butt plugs, etc. We haven't worked out all of the details, but the thought was that we would share the logins to the devices, maybe have it be anonymous who's controlling the device or being controlled, and then you have to guess who's on the other end of the device, either controlling it or being controlled. In discussing this, some people think this type of play would violate the consent of those not participating. One reason given was that it would subject people, in particular ace people, to unwanted sexual energy. My thought was that the people playing should be discreet. Isn't that part of the fun of playing with those devices? I know for a fact individuals already play with those devices at our socials, just not in an organized, large-scale way. Is this violating anyone's consent? I'm sorry, but if you're going to a kink social in a bar with 50, 60, 70 other people, aren't you signing up to be around, to be exposed to a certain degree of sexual energy. Let's not put this on asexuals. There are a lot of asexuals out there who engage in sexual activity for reasons other than 
feeling horny and it almost sounds like a hypothetical asexual is being invoked here that an asexual who's interested in kink some people are interested in kink play but not interested in sex or aren't aroused sexually about it but that an asexual person a hypothetical asexual person might wander into this kink event or attend it for reasons and object to being exposed to sexual energy who is that person asexual or not asexual. You don't have a reasonable expectation at a big kink event that you won't be surrounded by sexual energy. I'm sorry, that just makes no fucking sense to me. You go to a big packed dance club on a Friday or Saturday night, you're going to be exposed to a lot of sexual energy. You go to a kink event, a kink social where people are mingling in the hopes of playing and perhaps engaged in some light play. You say the bar closes down for this King Social at that event. Well, okay. Don't want to be around sexual energy? Get the fuck out. GTFO. If you come, if you arrive, if you show up and you stick around, all right, you are self-selecting to be a part of a group in which there's a certain degree of sexual energy zipping around the room. This isn't a group of kinksters with remote-controlled sex toys or non-kinksters. A lot of people who aren't necessarily kinky still enjoy these kinds of sex toys. Crowding onto a city bus and hijacking it for kink purposes and then, you know, a couple of kink muggles, a couple of vanilla people on the bus are going to be like, wait, what's all that buzzing sound? Oh, look at the looks on all these people's faces. Oh my God, what's happening? That would be unfair. That would be inconsiderate. That would be bringing sexual energy, you know, to the Clark Street bus in Chicago that you didn't have a right to bring. And it would be inconsiderate to bring. But a kink event, a kink mixer, a kink social at a bar that shuts down so all those kinky people can pile in and have a drink and flirt and make plans and maybe get just a little kinky in that space... Yeah, you don't get to walk into that space and say, everybody stop. And I think it's telling that no one has walked into that space and said, everybody stop. This sounds like one of those instances where a few too many people with too much time on their hands are sitting around inventing hypothetical people who might have a hypothetical problem with something that everybody else might be doing. Yeah, those people aren't going to be at that event. And if anybody like that shows up at that event they can leave and they should be if they run around slapping the remote control devices out of other people's hands they should be asked to leave all right before we get to listener response calls let's read some listener tweets sandy joe tweets just listening to the first caller on this week's episode of the savage Lovecast. uh that was the call from the woman whose boyfriend and the woman who basically invited herself over for a threesome ignored and then violated all of the caller's boundaries Sandy Joe tweets, fuck that guy and the third. Having been a third, stick to things that are agreed on. And if things start feeling unsafe, you got to be responsive, respectful, and caring. Those guys, the caller's ex-boyfriend, I hope, and their third. Those guys, Sandy Joe says, those guys suck. I could not agree more. Jam Eater Blues tweets, as someone in an LTR, I really want to hear at Fake Dan Savage's take on the West Elm Caleb TikTok situation and casual dating expectations among the straights in the next episode of Savage Lovecast. And Snuggle Muffin tweets, it might cause a bit of mental anguish to research West Elm Caleb, but it is such straight people dating nonsense. I'd love to hear about it. 
on the Savage Clubcast. All right, anyone who missed the West Elm Caleb nonsense over the last week, you can look it up. There are articles at BuzzFeed. There are articles at Vox. Basically, a hot, tall guy in New York leveraged his hot, tall guyness in New York to get into the pants of a whole bunch of women in New York. And he ghosted on a bunch of them. And one woman found out that the night after he slept with her, he slept with somebody else. Ghosting, love bombing, not nice, but you know, kind of comes with the casual sex territory. So does your casual sex partner going on to have casual sex with another casual sex partner, which you probably have done yourself. I don't think West Elm Caleb deserved to be the character of the day on Twitter and TikTok. He certainly didn't deserve to be outed or dragged. That said, just as all of us who are out there dating, having casual sex, have to know that people who want to get into our pants may tell us what we want to hear and that people who want to get into our pants and then do may ghost on us and then may go on to sleep with other people. Ah, I think in this connected age, the age of social media, we also have to be aware that if we treat a bunch of people badly, they may all hook up, find each other on TikTok or Twitter or wherever else and blow up our lives. So yeah, maybe don't ghost, don't love bump, be a little bit more polite as you're out there having all the casual sex with all the casual sex partners that you care to have. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted to your social media this week about the Lovecast, to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate it, the way all of you help get the word out about the Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response call to episode 795 for the caller who said that she got herpes from her most recent sexual partner. Um, I just wanted to point out that you don't actually know who gave you herpes unless you've only had one sex partner because so many people have herpes and a lot of people end up carrying it for years before they ever have a breakout, if they ever have a breakout. Um, so unless you've only had one partner, it could have been any of your previous partners that gave it to you. Um, additionally, for the orgies, um, highly recommend asking the men to switch condoms between partners. Um, it's not unreasonable at all to ask for that. And if you don't, you're sure you're protecting yourself from the man whose penis is inside you, but you have zero protection from any of the other women that he's been fucking. So if you're using the same condom with a whole bunch of different partners in one night, you're going to get whatever they have to. Hi, Dan. My call is a response to the girl who called in on episode 795 about the sex part and had the boundary about um, he didn't want his hair being touched and she thought that, that was like weird whatever and she disregarded that and then he was so uncomfortable that he left. I don't know for sure if like anyone in my life has this boundary when it comes to sex, but I do know that someone in my family has like a hair related trauma from growing up because my grandma was very intent on making sure all the boys in my family, all his cousins or whatever, had that like very like 1940s little boy hair part, you know, that's like three quarters of the way to the side of the head. And one of my cousins has really curly hair, and so his hair wouldn't like participate in this as well. And so she would like hairspray it and like pull it, and she was not gentle, and she'd make him cry. Whereas my little brother has really straight, fine hair, so his hair would just part easily, and it wasn't a big deal. Um, but for my cousin who had the curly hair, 
it was really traumatic because every time he was at my grandma's house, he knew that she was going to rip on his hair and it was going to be horrible and painful. And it only stopped when he got big enough to be like, no, you're not brushing my hair anymore. So maybe this guy has something like that where as a kid, it, it probably felt like a violation of his consent, not sexually, but just like bodily autonomy-wise of like, my cousin didn't want his hair being ripped. I don't know about this guy, but maybe it's something similar. So it doesn't necessarily have to be some like weird sexual hangout. It could literally just be that like as a child, he felt like disregarded or pushed aside or kind of bullied by an adult in his relationship. Hi, Don. This is in response to episode 795 and the woman's date who didn't want his hair touched. I've been with guys who didn't want me to touch their hair, and it's because their hair was from Hair Club or Bosley. It was a toupee or weave, and they were afraid I was going to rip it off their head. I think that's the most obvious answer. Sometimes fake hair looks very real, and you can't tell it's fake. And I guess that's the whole idea. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer voice memos. They have better sound quality. But we love your calls. We love your comments. We love your questions. However you choose to get them to us. The Hump 2022 tour dates are all out now. We will be traveling to more than 30 cities throughout the year, bringing with us a brand new spanking batch of hot, short, often very funny porn flicks. So get out of your bedroom, get out of the house, watch some porn with us in a theater like a normal adult would in the 70s. Visit humpmiltfest.com to see all of our stops, all the cities we're coming to, and to get your tickets today. And Sack Lunch, my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subscribers, is scheduled for next Thursday, February 3rd at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. So mark your calendars if you don't yet have one and grab that Magnum sub today. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Venus Cuckoldress on Twitter at CuckoldressV. Follow Dr. David Lay on Twitter at Dr. David Lay. That's L-E-Y. And follow Rose Carraway on Twitter at Rose Carraway. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech-savvy, often-cocked, at-risk youth will be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.